You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast them so you don't have to because we haven't yet discovered we truly love Andy McDowell. My name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, the only honest dog-faced pony soldier I know. Benedict, <laughs> what's your favorite Chinese restaurant takeout dish? Ooh, I don't know, I think it's um, in, in the UK, I don't really see it here, but prawn toast, do you have prawn toast here? No, that no. sounds so wrong. It's weird. It's like a, it, so it's like a prawn. On it, toast? No. So it's like, okay, just let me, give me a sec. Mm-hmm. So it's like a prawn patty, but then it's okay. on, pre, like pressed onto fried You bread. had me at prawns, you lost me at patty, but you, continue. But like a burger, like a prawn burger, but pressed mm-hmm. onto like fried bread. And yeah. then the fried bread is covered in sesame seeds on the top. It's that great. just sounds so wrong. It's that so good. So terrible. It's so good. It's so good, and it just tastes of like. I'm oil not entirely and... convinced that's a Chinese dish. I no, think that's no, more. No, it's like a I weird think that might British be more of a thing. British. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking it is. But it's oh, like you know how there's like toast. American Chinese food. It's the same thing. It's like it's British Chinese food. Like every true, Chinese true. place will have what. Have and it. you have horrible taste over there. We've established <laughs> this. There are no good British recipes. Listen, we love to fry. Yep. fish in so you can still taste it in your dead yep. mouths that's right uh i'm more i'm a low main guy it's my favorite i make it Fair a lot enough. i love if i'm if i'm going somewhere for chinese i'm getting low main it's my go-to Fair can't enough. be beat Fair simple enough. elegant delicious you can't beat a good low main <laughs> but anyways this is the show where we untangle the the web of right wing knowledge and thought and conspiracy and batshit lunacy that exists so that we can find out what's the spider really like at the center of that web is it charlotte or is it a big disgusting hairy spider like the kind that haunt my dreams it's most likely the second benedict you got a hot take for us this week yeah and it's not really a hot take it's more just a complaint that i don't think i sleep enough let's be honest most of yours are just complaints that's true I don't think I get enough sleep and I think it's catching up with me and I just have brain fog all the time, which is not great. It's called getting old, my friend. <laughs> that might be it. <laughs> that might be it. I'm just, I think I just need to sleep more is the, is the hot take. So sleep is good for you. Everybody hydrate. That's my hot take. Everyone well, I live hydrate. in a constant state of sleep deprivation. That's yeah. just, I mean, that's just the last... 
How many years have I been in college now? I can't even remember. Too many. Oh, too many years. My last year of law school here, hopefully, no, it's not going to go away. I'm never going to get enough no, sleep. It doesn't get better. You kidding? Nope, not at all. Not <laughs> it gets at all. worse. People expect you to actually do things in a reasonable amount of time. Oh, I can't sleep through classes and get notes from somebody later. Shit. Yeah, no, you just have to be places and have thoughts. Having <laughs> thoughts. I haven't had one of those since I was 12. <laughs> That's not great, given you were probably super racist when you were 12. Oh, let's not go there today. Let's not go there <laughs> Okay, none today. of that. Let's be happy, because okay. yeah, we have a days. wonderful, wonderful chapter We do today. not. That is I'm wrong. I'm super excited for Anyway, what's your hot take? My hot take! Uh, everyone should have a collection of some kind. Okay. Uh, I, everyone knows, everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a fanboy. I'm a, I'm a comic book geek. I love my Marvel and my DC and a lot of the, the other stuff out there, a lot of the image stuff. Uh, and I, I've never really been a collector. And I think part of it was I never had space for clutter. I never really had enough room to let stuff accumulate. Uh, but I have, for the first time in about a decade, been living in the same apartment for more than one year, <laughs> which is remarkable. Is it is crazy. absolutely amazing to me that I've been able to do this uh, and haven't had to move because it's been constantly, right, from dorm rooms to apartments and this, that, the other. Um, so this is a, a strange experience for me, and I recently decided to take up uh, collecting comic books. And I, yes. uh, I went uh, the other day to a comic book shop, uh, you know, picked up a good uh, 20 or 30 uh, decent comics, you know, some up in the, the $10 range, but more likely out of the $1 boxes. Uh, you know, a couple here and there that are two mm. or three bucks. So just some nice stuff that I enjoy. Uh, a lot of Spider-Man, because as we've established, Spider-Man is the greatest hero in all of fiction or nonfiction. Sure. Uh, and sure. I love, I love you, you've Spider-Man. Sure. Of course. And I've also had a small collection, um, not anything big. I've had like four or five uh, action figures of various uh, comic book characters around my apartment. And I just today uh, got in the mail another one that I ordered, which is a Diamond Select uh, Spider-Man figurine, uh, which is just beautifully done. Just wonderful. And I think we could all enjoy having a little something that we take pride in. And even if it doesn't really, even if it doesn't really have any value, it has value to you. Yeah. So collect nice. something, something you enjoy, some sort of tchotchke, something that can make you feel happy. Uh, go for it. Bring nice. you a little, bring you a little happiness in your sad life. All right. That's lovely. Well, so Benedict, what's on your bookshelf this week? I can't remember if I've already done this one. As mentioned, I have brain fog all the time. But um, it is Blindness by Jose Saramago. And if it, if if I have already done it, just well, read anything. Well, I don't remember you ever doing that Maybe. one. And as we've established on the show, I'm the one who keeps things going. So I don't think you've done it before. That's true. Okay, so anything by Saramago, really. He was a Portuguese Nobel laureate writing in the midst of the... Fascist dictatorship in Portugal, um, and then beyond that into the mid nineties, I think maybe mid mid thousands. Um, and it's about it's kind of like a philosophical exploration of what happens if or everyone suddenly goes blind in a country, um, and it doesn't go great. Is the I'm <laughs> suspecting that's a metaphor for something. Yes, it is. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> And say, wait, what if we ignore the norms in our society and just let terror reign? And, you know, maybe that's fascism. Who knows? I believe it is. I believe it is. <laughs> we'll never know. Anyway, it's really good. It's And he writes in like a weird way too, like an unusual way in that he doesn't really do... He uses punctuation weirdly. 
So he will end his sentences in commas, which is kind of weird to get used to at first, mm. but it also works because it then like when he does end a sentence with a full stop or a period, whatever, um, you notice it and it, he, like he has done it for a reason. So it's interesting. David it's Foster like... Wallace knockoff bullshit. <laughs> Literarily, it is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> David Foster Wallace, the most... Ugh. Who came don't get much me later than David the guy Foster you're talking Wallace. about? <laughs> yeah, don't don't get me started on David Foster Wallace, who is I a have great long I have long held to be true that no one has ever actually finished Infinite Jest that because be no one because it is about literally tennis. infinity pages long. He put it in like the title. No, I feel like nobody cares about tennis is going to be my catchphrase. It's going <laughs> to catch on somewhere. It's going to be a thing. I care about tennis, so it struggles <laughs> to resonate on this podcast. <laughs> Well, anyways, my bookshelf this week, I'm going back to uh, a documentary series. I've talked about them before. Uh, I've recommended plenty of them. But there's a new one that just came out on uh, uh, Disney+. Plus, uh, which, at, And, of course, it's related to Marvel. Uh, it is the Marvel 616 documentary series. Uh, if you're a fanboy like me, you'll love it just because it's Marvel stuff. But it also is a pretty interesting look at, you know, there's there are different topics. There's like eight episodes, I think. And they cover a bunch of different topics. So one of them is about women in comic books, um, you know, the history of women working, uh, you know, even back in like the 30s and 40s, there were women there uh, drawing comics and doing things, but they, you know, they're the unsung heroes uh, of the comic book world. And there's other ones that are just, you know, more fanboy. There's like a, an episode all about cosplayers, which follows a bunch of cosplayers. It's all heartwarming stories about people who really connect to what they're doing and love it. It's fantastic. Check it out. It'll have you... It'll have you getting the feels inside. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. Not for me. That so, sounds good. No, because you have no joy in your life. That's true. But a little bit of housekeeping this week, of course, as always. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Give us those five stars there. Helps us get found by more people. And, of course, we want to keep growing the show so we can do more for all of our wonderful listeners. Also, make sure to follow us on the socials at NYGBCpod on Twitter and Facebook. And... Uh, and I might as well just give one of my alternate chapter titles for this book this week, uh, which is why this is why you never compliment Ben Shapiro. Because <laughs> last week, when we were recording the Greg Jarrett book, we said, you know, at least Ben Shapiro has consistent 20-page chapters. Yeah. He's been giving us that all the way through. And, you know, J we're talking about how Jarrett is all over the place with these different chapter lengths. And, yeah, Ben Shapiro is just consistent, man. Boom, this week he hits us with 40 fucking pages. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. That motherfucker. <laughs> and so, us. because this is so long, uh, we're going to be splitting it in half. And the first half of the chapter this week is going to be up on the regular feed. For everybody, you're all going to get to hear it. The second half of the chapter this week is going to be our patron-only bonus episode for the month of November, uh, even though it's going to come out, as always, a couple days after November has ended. Mm -hmm. Our patrons know us by now. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be putting that out later in this week, and probably I would, Friday I would just Saturday. say that's the fun stuff, because that's when you'll get to hear what I really think oh, about yeah. Marks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Benedict's going to go full communista on us. <laughs> it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, so we're going to have the, the NYGBC revolution uh, going on. on Viva. The only bonus. Yeah, Viva, Viva La Book Club. Yeah. Uh, we also might do a little some of the usual other stuff there. We might have one, maybe one opinion piece we go through uh, as a warm-up before we get into the, the <laughs> chapter over there on the patron only. 
I know you love those so much. But you did. You did request, basically, last week that I find something defending Nixon from impeachment. I did, yeah. And uh, and we'll see. We'll see what I'm able to turn up. Okay. Uh, you'll, I, think you'll, I think you'll enjoy. Oh, but with man. that out of the way, we return to our book review of The Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro, Wisconsin Southeast Regional Second Place Butter Sculpture of a Sad Boy. Benedict, what did we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read Chapter 7, The Remaking of the World, in which the Europeans inevitably barrel towards fascism because reasons. The Europeans, but notably not the British. No. Who are apparently not European in nope. Shapiro's. In any way. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how he exactly carved them out, but uh, apparently they're, they're on an entirely different track over there in the UK from everybody else. <laughs> I mean, the UK thinks that too, to be fair. They don't consider well, themselves yeah, European a lot honest. of the time. They did a whole thing a couple years ago to come into fruition. Now it's sort yep. of part of that whole thing. Yeah. Yep. It's not going uh, great. But Benedict, either. you have an alternate chapter title for I us, have two, it? actually. Uh, Ooh, you the, did work. I know. <laughs> Bizarre. Um, well, this chapter, as you, said, as you said off air, is extremely up my alley, so I got riled up. Um, <laughs> the, first, the first is simply those pesky Europeans, which, you mm-hmm. know, fair enough. Um, and the second is, it is unreasonable that people have views other than mine. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, and uh, I have two as well this week, okay, other than the one I it. already gave. My first one, uh, fuck reasonable, it's about Jesus. <laughs> and you'll get this, listeners, as we get into the, the very beginning of this chapter. <laughs> if you can't uh, the guess, second one, it, you will get yeah. it. <laughs> second one, Diderot don't care about your feelings. <laughs> It's so easy with Ben to just go back to those all the time. It really is. <laughs> but we begin this chapter with the quote that gave rise to two of our chapter titles this week, which is, why can't we all just be reasonable? Why can't I mean, we all just be reasonable, Benedict? What's, because what's, people like why you can't complain. Benedict just put his computer down <laughs> and just be fucking reasonable. And what he gets into here with that is he's describing reasonableness as the characteristic call of our age. Forgetting values and judgment, it's about being reasonable. And of course, it's about tolerance. Mm. Tolerance can supplant Judeo-Christian ideas, which of course he's implying there automatically that Judeo-Christian ideas are not tolerant. Yeah. And uh, and ancient Greek Athenian ideas too, which is largely true. If you look at who was considered a, f- a full citizen in either of these societies, yes, it wasn't a super tolerant time. <laughs> yeah, and so he's going to start off here. Remember, we ended the last chapter in the Enlightenment era, uh, and he's going to start off and sort which of forget he that hates. He brought this up. Seemingly. Of course, he hates, he hates the, the Enlightenment. Enlightenment even though he wouldn't be here without the fucking Enlightenment. Uh, but he's going to start off shitting on the Enlightenment again. And he's My favorite break thing, the enlighten- first of all, mm-hmm. just before you get into this, he, he says that the, America, the, the Enlightenment straddled two sides of a thin, yes, thin line. Yes, that's exactly what I was just about okay, to mention. Sorry, yeah, I mean, you, I'll, I'll let you do it in a sec. But he says the American Enlightenment, based on blah, 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 and the European Enlightenment, which was evil, basically, <laughs> is what he says. He has not mentioned, as far as I can tell, maybe Paine, but he hasn't mentioned one American philosopher or thinker, apart from, like, broadly the founding fathers. I mean, he's brought up Locke, who is, like, pseudo-American. I mean, he wrote the Carolina Constitution, which ensconced slavery as a right. Yeah. Um, I don't think he really liked Locke either, though, did he, when he described Locke? I think think he did. 
he glossed over it so much. It's hard to tell but whether not, he likes okay. Locke or not. But, but I don't I'm, think he would say he hates The point being, Locke. most of the philosophers he's mentioned are European. He hasn't yes. brought us the ideas of a single American philosopher because there weren't really any because most of the thinking was being done in Europe. <laughs> And that's the point, Benedict. Why do we have to think in America? (laughs) These Europeans coming over here trying to give us all their thoughts and wordy thinking and Mm. all that shit that's just fucking everything up. We just want to be American and not think. You should know (laughs) this by now. You've been living here for years. That's true. That's true. So the quote that you were referencing is where he says, quote, The Enlightenment straddled two sides of a thin line. On the one side was the American Enlightenment, based on the consummation of a long history of thought stretching back to Athens and Jerusalem, down through Great Britain, does not make sense geographically or in any other sense, and the Glorious Revolution and to the New World. On the other was the European Enlightenment, which rejected Athens and Jerusalem in order to build new worlds beyond discoverable purpose and divine revelation. There's a lot to unpack there. Not a lot. A lot. So, Glorious Revolution is a specific thing, which yeah. I do, I, when I read that initially, I thought, okay, is he just using that in a vague sense and not actually referencing the thing that happened that's called the Glorious Revolution? Mm-hmm. I think he actually is trying to reference the Glorious Revolution, even though he never talked about it in the periods of this book where he was in that time frame. No. So, I don't know why he decided to just throw it in now as a side note. Oh, he loves to throw huge historical events in as a, as a side note. He does that all chapter. Yeah. But I think part of the reason why he threw it in there this time is because he's going to be talking a lot about the French Revolution in this chapter, at least the first half of this chapter. And he's going to, without actually doing it explicitly at all, it was in my mind because he had said the word earlier, uh, he's going to be contrasting the French Revolution with the Glorious Revolution, which, if you aren't aware, was basically a case where an army marched through England and uh, the king who was there was like, okay, you can have it. That's basically the glorious revolution. For yeah, him. and it was it was a change from I think Catholicism to Protestantism. Yeah, uh, it was one England. of those two ways. I don't remember which it way was, around. Well, it was. so the 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 king of the Netherlands, William of Orange, became took over as king, and the Netherlands was a Protestant country. Um, took over as king from James the sixth, one of the James. You could be right. I wouldn't know. Yeah, in the in the mid to late 1600s in the UK, it was I mean it was relatively uh, quick and bloodless, so glorious in that sense. Yeah. Um, but then they were all deposed very soon afterwards when the George the First came to power in like 20 years later. So I mean it's it's basically somebody of orange. I know somebody of orange was involved. William William of, William of Orange. William. Yes. Of orange, who was who was William the fourth? Brownie points for Kevin this week. Uh, but the other half of that, outside of the, his his model of all this got going from Athens straight to Britain, ignoring everything in between, mm. and then to the New World, um, and the other being the Enlightenment, somehow all of that thought that went from Athens just skipped over the Enlightenment, even though that's what he spent the last entire chapter talking about, mm. uh, and went straight to the New World. But the other half that he's talking about here, What he's going to be criticizing the entire chapter is what he describes as the result of the European Enlightenment. Of course, as we know, the Enlightenment went directly to the French Revolution and the Robespierres and Jacobins. Mm. That is exactly what you get when you have an Enlightenment. There is no, uh, it's not as though there are a bunch of other countries in Europe that had different things going on at the time. It's all straight to the French Revolution. Well, he he just builds it as the inevitable conclusion of European enlightenment thinking, doesn't he? That's the that's oh, what he's course. saying here. And basically, I I mean what happens in this chapter is he well, 
he says basically that fascism is the inevitable conclusion of the european enlightenment is is his implication and also that marxism is and communism (laughs) and so like things that emerged in europe are the inevitable conclusion of what happened in europe seems like a weird argument to me but yes ben things that happened later came after the things that came before them (laughs) exactly it doesn't mean it's built on the enlightenment it's built on a bunch of socio-political cultural elements but sure everyone does deep thinking about philosophy before they do a revolution like it's not just because there's no bread and people are mad about there not being bread, which is the cause but of pretty much av- every major revolution. <laughs> so he, he tells us early on here in this chapter pretty explicitly that what he's going to be comparing, and he doesn't really even do it all that much. He basically just focuses on the French Revolution, but he says mm. he's going to be, com- or implies he's going to be comparing the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Yeah, and I mean, the he, what he does is compare the 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 bad bits of the French Revolution to the sanitized idea of the American mm-hmm. Revolution without exploring what that means. Yeah. So, yes. Ignoring any good bits of the French Revolution. Like, I don't know, the part where they got rid of slavery? I think yeah. that would uh, well, be a good comparison to the American one. Yeah. But, I mean, they did reinstitute that in Haiti not long after. They, I mean, did. Napole- they did. Napoleon was like, uh, actually, takes his backseas, <laughs> and then they enslaved a whole bunch of people again. Napoleon's like, I like that tobacco and sugar shit. That yeah. stuff's good. And I'm a little chubby guy. So the Haitian Revolution, that. by the way, is the coolest revolution in history. <laughs> yeah. People should go and read about the Haitian Revolution. It is. Uh, go listen to Mike Duncan's, I think it's series four on his Revolutions podcast. It is so good. Check it out. Don't listen to us while you're listening to us. Uh, I'm, just, so- I'm just trying to get him, get him in like the same category as us and people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, people like this week in whatever history. What's this podcast called? <laughs> <laughs> not your grandmother's not book your club. Not your grandmother's book club. Yeah, yeah that's, yep, that's the one. Yeah, that's it. People like that's not your one. grandmother's book club. Maybe you'll, they'll like revolutions. And then hopefully we reverse engineer that into well, maybe more Maybe that'll show up him. in the algorithm exactly. if you like that's and review us on iTunes. That's what I'm saying. Uh, but so he starts off, right, talking about the French Revolution, telling us that it was born out of a utopian sense of purpose. Again, no. It was born out of <laughs> the price of flour got really expensive. People were starving and they were mad that the king was putting huge taxes on people, especially the nobles, actually. It was kind of a noble revolution to start with. Mm-hmm. that it needs things need this the, the third estate was called because the nobles were mad at the king because he tried to entrench privileges that and limit nobles from privileges and then people also got mad because they were also hungry and that is a system for revolutions to occur when the bourgeoisie is mad and also the proletariat is mad that doesn't tend to end well for whoever is ruling the country and let me tell you, when my Grubhub is five minutes late, I start unpacking the guillotine I keep in my closet. So I understand completely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he, the first philosopher he's going to bring up here, as you know, he spends all these chapters go, using philosophers as his vehicle of travel uh, throughout the chapter. The first one he's going to bring up is Diderot, <laughs> uh, editor of the Encyclopedia, which is not the Encyclopedia as you think of it. It was a different book called Encyclopedia. The pronunciation is different because it's French, but I can't do it. Encyclopédie. Yes, that. Uh, And he says of Diderot that he said he wished to strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest, which is a mistranslation or mischaracterization of the Diderot quote that men cannot be free, and I'm paraphrasing as well, but more accurately, that men cannot be free until the last king is strangled with the garters of the last priest. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite a violent quote, but there's some truth in it. I mean, you can't yeah. be free while being ruled by a king. You would think that that Ben would agree with that. But. And, you, and you have to realize that France right, had the dual influences of the French monarchy as well as the Catholic Church, yeah. uh, which had tremendous amounts of power in I, France. And I, I would say not dual influences, but dual oppressors of the French monarchy, which was a, a real all-powerful monarchy and the Catholic Church, which was the Catholic Church. Like, there's a whole lot there. There's a whole lot there. Um, and just because he took the time to pull up Diderot and shit on him, I did find a Diderot quote that I think Ben might enjoy. Go ahead. Which is, quote, and this is also from the Encyclopédia. <laughs> quote, all things must be examined, debated, investigated, without exception, and without regard for anyone's feelings. Oh. Diderot was the first one to say facts don't care about your feelings. Les faits n'aiment pas tes sentiments. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. That's very good. That's, That's so beautiful. I, I I came across that entirely by accident because I was fact checking the quote the quotes he put in, and so I was on you know a bunch of those websites that have a bunch of quotes, and eventually I got over to like to a uh, I don't know some university in in uh, the UK. I don't remember which one, which had a, you know a bunch of Diderot quotes, and there it was. Like holy shit, I have to use that. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was amazing. Very good. So. Where we get back uh, uh, to the book, as we, we always try to avoid, mm. he gets back into a little bit of talking about the United States, and he says, according to Ben, that uh, the United States was moving towards an embrace of the Enlightenment based on Locke, and this is a quote, based on Locke, Blackstone, Montesquieu, and the Bible. The first meeting of the United States Senate occurred on March 4th, 1789. The French Revolution moved toward utopian re rebuilding. On July 14, 1789, French citizens stormed the Bastille, and they quickly dethroned the kings and priests. So, no. <laughs> no, I just love to take things completely out of their socio-political historical context. Like, on July 14, 1789, French citizens stormed the Bastille. Okay, why? Why did they do that? <laughs> it, was it, was it a... a a spontaneous action or was it a had they been philo philosophizing for months being like how can we best put forward our rights of man i know we'll storm the bastille on july 14th 1789 <laughs> no these are mass <laughs> uprisings what a fucking stupid sentiment also like so i i don't think it's entirely fair to say that there was no philosophy at the higher levels of the french revolution sure right the people was. who became famous later of robespierre and the like that there weren't any philosophizing uh, about why they were doing things and, and all of, well, everything that was behind it. There certainly was, and there certainly was the things that came afterwards. But you're entirely right that he's mistaking the uh, motiva motivation of the, uh, the enlightened few, the intelligentsia at the top, with the mass of the, the peasants and the citizens of Paris and the rest of the country. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And and he's doing it deliberately too. He's saying, "Oh, the the Americans put forward these like philosopher kings or whatever as his implication, and they they went to decide the fate of the country in the Senate, which is the world's greatest deliberative body, whatever." Is the implication again? I'm reading between the lines there. And then he's saying, "Oh, the French were just impatient and complainy, and they stormed the Bastille, <laughs> and they quickly dethroned the kings and priests." Again, I looked in the index, Girondins aren't mentioned once in this entire book, which is obviously the more, for those that don't know, the more moderate, slightly more moderate, not hugely more moderate faction of revolutionaries who were like, okay, what about like a constitutional monarchy? 
instead of like an absolutist monarchy. How about that? And the, it, it, this is really oversimplifying the whole concept of revolutions in that there is always infighting in revolutions and the dominant faction, the faction that ends up winning isn't always the dominant faction nor the inevitable winner. There, there well, is so much chance that happens in revolutions. Right. Like there is an alternate history of the French Revolution where the king doesn't try to flee and is put back on the throne with his powers severely impinged. Right. There, there are several alternate histories where individuals making decisions vastly affect the outcome of the revolution. Especially there's individuals another in power. alternate history where a guy steals a loaf of bread and everybody dies. But that's <laughs> that's an entirely different issue. That's an entirely uh, different revolution, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's the 1830 uprising, yes. I think. Yes. Um, and, and so the, what I wanted to pick out here right away, right before we get too deep into this chapter is also. Along with what you're saying, I agree with everything you're saying. But I, I did mention previously in this book that I've noticed it, it's strange to me the hatred for the French Revolution, right? Because you would think that these, you know, the the democracy is the greatest ever. All these people would be for it. But the implication we get coming away from this chapter and for me from this book is that Shapiro thinks the world would be better if French was still under the absolutist monarchy mm. of well, the I, French I, kings. I agree, and I, but I think it's more the anti-religious aspects of the French Revolution that he's right. he that marks it as particularly hateful for him. Right, um, and which also we've talked before as well about how I think he wants a theocracy. Oh, he does. I think I yeah, think that's abs- right. I am increasingly convinced so that that is correct. weird to me. Yeah. 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 It, it does it does get more intense in this chapter. Uh and especially in the second half of the chapter when he starts shitting on Darwin more. Weird, yeah. man. Just weird. But there's so also, he's got a- later in the chapter, which we'll get to for the patrons, there's some weird stuff where he's like, Oh, the Catholics hated fascism, which that is not true. <laughs> no, Look at no, Spain no, 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 and Portugal. And also the Pope and various cardinals being very buddy buddy with Hitler and Mussolini. And my friend, have you heard of Italy? Yeah. You ever you ever heard of uh, where fascism came from? Yep. Anyways, so he's gonna he's gonna move on, right? He's just talking about how the the religious implications, like you mentioned, of what was going on in the French Revolution, how they tossed out religion. Of course, that was true. They tossed the Catholic Church out of the country, basically, and it didn't come back until Napoleon basically negotiated a truce with the Catholic Church, which limited their power in France, etc. Cetera, which et cetera. also was not that long afterwards. Like, we went from French Revolution to Napoleon's ultimate defeat in, like, 20 years. Like, that is not a huge span of time, right? Like, He also, as as part of his criticism of the French Revolution, mentions that tens of thousands were killed. Oh, yeah, no mention of the Native American genocide. I like that. Beyond that, dude, the American Revolution happened with a war. Yeah. Plenty of people were killed. Yeah, that's I don't true. understand say, pointing out that people were killed in one hand and not pointing out that people were killed on the other. I think it's because he doesn't like the people who were killed. He likes the monarchy. Yeah. But according to Ben, this is all comes down to, again, the rejection of Judeo-Christian values, his copy replace phrase, and ancient virtue is what he's using now rather than that uh, uh, Greek, uh, what, what was the phrase he had before? I don't even remember at this point. It was like uh, Aristotelian telos, I think, was the yeah, phrase. He's gone to ancient thing. virtue now, which I appreciate because it's much easier for me to repeatedly say. <laughs> but those have been subjugated in Ben's eyes on behalf of the general will. And to illustrate this, he looks at the French Declaration of the Rights of Man which was, of course, approved by the National Assembly on August 26th, 
1789. That is a and fact also, that I learned that I did not know. I did not know the exact date that the Declaration of the Rights of Man was approved. Well, you, you know what came up to me when I was reading, just for some reason, you know, things, we've been going through this book forever now, but things hit you at different times. And the fact that he always includes, you know, a lot of specific dates and the dates when people were born or died and all these things... It takes me back to when I, as a kid, would sit and watch Bill O'Reilly with my dad. Mm. And every day, Bill O'Reilly would end the show with his word of the day. And I think it's because Republican thinks, Republicans think that knowledge is knowing fun facts. Mm. I really think it is. That that's what it comes down to for them. Oh, can I, can I change my hot take, actually, halfway through this? Yes. I, I'm going to change it. And here it is. It, it is related to that, actually. I'm not editing it back into the beginning of no, the show, fine. but you could do it right now. That's yes. fine. I'm going to do it right now. All exams should be open book. That is my oh, hot yes. take. Oh, yes. Absolutely. That is my hot take. Because it, there is no value to being able to memorize and recite a bunch of facts if you don't know how to think about them. So we should not encourage people to learn stuff by rote. And what we should do is encourage them how to think by giving them access to the materials with which they need exactly. to think. Exactly. Encourage synthesis rather exactly. than rote repetition. Exactly. I am 100% on board. Cool. Yeah, I don't know how hot a take that is really, but as someone who was always good at memorizing shit and exams, it's a hot take to me. <laughs> me too. But still, I, I appreciate what you're getting at there. So... He goes through about like two pieces of the the Declaration of Rights of Man. Oh, but, uh, the, sorry, just quickly. You know what else? Seventeen August twenty sixth, seventeen eighty nine is famously four years before they killed Louis the sixteenth. So it's not fun. like it. You know, the revolution could have gone a lot of different ways after that. Mm -hmm. Right? There was mm -hmm. still a lot of growth and potential potential wobbliness in the French Revolution to go. Absolutely. So in Ben's view, and he says this quote. Every individual right expressed in the French Declaration is curbed by the collective's right to overrule that individual. So the first example he gives uh, is, I don't remember which, which number, which declaration it was. I had it pulled up, but I don't, and I'm not going to bother to find it, um, which is the, the clause that is, Men are born and remained free and equal in rights. Social distinctions may be founded only upon the general good. And according to Ben, that second clause makes the first one meaningless. Because if they're equal in right, how can their rights be subject to the opinions of a majority? Well, yeah, I would I mean, point out that basically they're just saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah, that is isn't in it the just American more Constitution. honest? <laughs> yeah, that, but that's, that's so. exactly. It's just a more honest way of going about it. Like, uh, so and the fun the, the part later, is that the later one is <laughs> law is the expression of the general will and the publish the public order established by law. So what he's saying is we have the right to change the laws if we decide we disagree with them, right? Which is right. essentially what every constitution says, yeah. including the American constitution of like, we can arbitrarily change this <laughs> if we decide to as a society. And it's pretty, well, I say there's a slight, there's this weird difference. So French is a civil law country mm. in which basically everything is codified. France, not French. And America, the UK, other countries are uh, common law countries mm. in which a lot of the law is contained in case law and comes down from rules of equity developed over you know long time of judges deliberating on things. So there is this little bit of difference there that I don't... Ben probably knows, given that he graduated from Harvard Law. He doesn't bother to spell it out at all. Um, but it doesn't really matter. The thing I wanted to point out is that the French Declaration of the Rights of Man is so closely modeled on the U.S. Constitution 
But if you if you go through all the articles of the Declaration, you're like, oh, that correlates to this thing from the Constitution or this thing from, uh, you know, some fucking, the Declaration of Independence, whatever. They very clearly copied pretty closely of what we had done in the United States. Ben just wants to draw an entirely different conclusion based on the way things turned out there. Yeah, and but so isn't what you're saying in that it's a civil law, like they have to write a lot of this stuff out and be explicit about the fact that they can arbitrarily change the laws. That's, yeah, so that's you know how every now and then it, yeah. you'll see Republicans, and this was a big thing, I don't know, like eight or nine years ago, where they'd hold up a copy of the, dec- or the, the Constitution of the United States and then they'd have like a copy of the European Constitution, the, the Constitution of the European Union, and they'd be like, look how much thinner ours is. Isn't that great? And what they're ignoring is like, Okay, A, constitutions aren't done in the way they used to be. And B, the European, the Constitution of the European Union, that document, like, con- is a codification of all the treaties and agreements and all that shit they put together over the years. And it's like, okay, that's the difference as I would describe it. The U.S. Constitution says a lot with very little because everything that's in there, you have to do a lot more looking to find in all of our uh, legal decisions and Supreme Court decisions and all these things that have happened over decades and decades. The French law system is much more explicit in trying to write everything down in the code so that it's easier for people to know without having to have a a degree in law. Yeah. And and also should point out that the American constitution codified slavery so we can't really be talking about how rights were impinged upon by the french constitution really can't the american constitution has a fugitive slave slave clause that that second clause about (laughs) slaves renders the first as ben would say absolutely meaningless there you go it's not meaningful Anyway. And the second, the second one he gets into um, from the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man is uh, the quote, Liberty consists in the freedom to do everything which injures no one else. These limits can only be determined by law. And again, that's just a difference in, in, right, in the U.S. We basically have a principle similar to that. It's not, it's not absolute as Ben would like it to be mm. uh, because we do have things that don't harm anyone else but that are still illegal. Uh, but it's just more explicit in the... It, all this is nonsense! Also... I don't know why we're spending time on this. Quick aside, wasn't the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and forgive me if I'm wrong about this, because I might be, but wasn't it written by Lafayette and Jefferson? <laughs> I don't remember who wrote it. Um, hold on, I Do will find out right now. real quick? Because I feel like that, you know, Lafayette It was, it was drafted... It was drafted by Abbe Sies. Abbe Sies, Whose yeah. name I'm sure I'm, I'm mangling. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette... In consultation with Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Great. Good stuff. So two of the so heroes of the ben American Shapiro Revolution. Ben Shapiro hates Thomas Jefferson. That's right, he does. What a bizarre thing. I really love it. So he, you know, he goes through a little bit of shitting on Voltaire and Rousseau. Uh, talking about how, right, their influence on the, the revolution and then uh, with the way that Voltaire and Rousseau were later treated treated by the revolution, their bodies, uh, you know, basically given the, the royal treatment and uh, taken through the city and put on display in the Pantheon, all that sort of stuff. None of it is really, it, it has, I don't know why he put it in here. It doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on in the chapter. But I think we've established at this point that he hates Voltaire and Rousseau. Uh, so that he just wants to point out, well, the French really liked those French fucks. 
who hated each other both both of them would agree not exactly pals not exactly gal pals <laughs> they were not fond of each other so ben asks next quote where exactly did the french revolution born with dreams of liberty equality and fraternity go so wrong it went wrong because the enlightenment of the French Revolution rejected the lessons of the past. It saw in the history of the West mere repression and brutality, and longed for a tomorrow full of visions and dreams based on vague notions of human goodness. Now, not necessarily wrong, by no, the way. No, they were not wrong that the past was objectively repressive and brutal, right? I mean, yeah. This is fucking the 1700s. There's no way you can say that there was this glorious past we're supposed to be looking back to. You're looking at a history of human brutality and terribleness. Yeah, that is exactly what conservatives generally do, though. It's romanticizing the past, as you know. But I, I, don't, I still don't think we've figured out a time period that Ben romanticizes, other than the United States founding. But he keeps... Literally Moses going up on uh, Is that it? Because he keeps referencing, like, past back before the revolution, and I can't figure out when exactly he's talking about. Maybe you're right. It's like the time of Moses and when Israel yeah. was a nation in the... You know, pre, I don't know, when was that? I don't know any of that kind of stuff, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Maybe that's what he's idolizing, but he sure hasn't given us really anything else no, besides maybe ancient Greece that he's really pointing he back to. He loves arbitrary absolute monarchy, yes. apparently, yes. In, in the French. Like, And this is the other thing. He just doesn't reckon in any way with what the French Revolution was trying to replace. Yeah. Right, there is no, re and he loves to not reckon with difficult subjects. I looked up the in the index and texted you earlier. He just, for, for someone who's talking about the the history of Western philosophy, he doesn't reckon with Bertrand Russell in any way. In A man who literally wrote the history of Western philosophy, like he, you know, one of the great British. Well, Bertrand Russell is way too fucking smart yeah. for Ben Shapiro to deal with. Yeah. Also, Bertrand Russell wrote a great letter to Oswald Mosley, famous fascist mm -hmm. Oswald Mosley, because Mosley invited him for lunch, and Russell was like, I do not want to do that in any way, because I think you are a fundamentally evil person, and I don't want to encourage anyone to be as fundamentally evil as you by having lunch with them. So... I feel like I do remember hearing about that somewhere else. I don't remember where, but I remember that story. Oh, fucking Bertrand Russell, man. If Bertrand I, Russell's the man. If I ever get a terrier of some sort, it's going to be my, he's going to be Bertrand because he'll be a Bertrand Russell. <laughs> a Jack terrier. Russell, Jack Russell terrier. He'll be a Bertrand Russell terrier. Oh, I see, I see. Aha! But he takes us next to the hero, the champion of the right, that great thinker, great freedom fighter, Edmund Burke. Okay, Burke is actually an interesting thinker, though. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I know I know you're being a little talking about the guy who basically founded the fucking Tories, man. <laughs> yeah, no, but he's an interesting thinker. No, you. I agree, but I have to. I have to throw archetypal, shade where I can. I know, I know. He's the archetypal conservative thinker, and it like did have views that were borne out by history. But it's another one of those things that it's like, yeah he wrote some things that were right about French, the French Revolution and he just happened to be right. You know, like it, anyone can make predictions and happen to be right. He didn't know where the French Revolution was going in 1789. Nobody did. It's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, it is utterly ridiculous. It's like Nostradamus being like, oh, well, he clearly knew what was happening. Like, No, he, he made an educated guess and history kind of went the way that he thought it would in that history tends to descend into chaos. 
well, especially revolutions tend to descend into chaos. Nine out of ten revolutions, you can be like, this isn't going to end well. And you would be right. Well, and this is a, an area where I think we can learn something about the thinking of at least the the educated right, the intelligentsia of the right, people like Ben Shapiro. Um, in that when they have figures like Edmund Burke, who got something right, but so much else so, so wrong... Um, they treat them as though, you know, ignore the stuff they got wrong. It's the good stuff we want to pay attention to. Whereas with people on our side, people we like, like, say, Diderot or Voltaire, um, who got stuff right, most definitely, and got other stuff wrong, the stuff that they got wrong merits throwing out everything that they got right. It's a complete double standard that justifies their entire ideology because they don't have to pay attention to any of those other thinkers. They can just point at what they got wrong... And then say, oh, well, obviously everything they did was wrong. Yeah, there's no shades of gray. And it's the same. They do the same thing with the revolutions writ large. So the American Revolution got some things right. Sure, a perfect revolution. French Revolution got some things wrong. Evil revolution, right? It's, it just it doesn't work that way. Of course. So he tells us that Burke was arguing the French Revolution had failed because it ignored those lessons about human nature. And human nature is a phrase that the right loves to bring up a lot when they're talking about p- politics, just because it's vague enough that they can just throw it out and think they're sounding intelligent and say, oh, you know, human nature just isn't that way. Uh, you're never going to yeah. get people to actually work, you know, work in a society where everyone's helping each other and doing the right thing. You have to, it justifies fascism in effect yes yeah but uh talking about burke and what burke foresaw he quotes a philosopher named russell kirk who i took the time to look up just because i get bored you know how i do uh but this is a guy who was around uh in the uh early 1900s to to actually lived a long life he died in like 1995 or something uh so he was around a long time uh, he's, you know, professor, philosopher, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the quote he gives us from this guy is, quote, Revelation, reason, and an assurance beyond the senses tell us that the author of our being exists and that he is omniscient. And man and the state are creations of God's beneficence. How are we to know God's mind and will? Through the prejudices and traditions which millennia of human experience with divine means and judgments have implanted in the minds of the species. And what is our purpose in this world? Not to indulge our appetites, but to render obedience to divine ordinance. The only reason I fucking bring that up is because, again, stamp your bingo card, Ben can't go a chapter without arguing, no, God is real. (laughs) He can't go a fucking chapter without that. And I, I wouldn't, you know, it would be bullshit of me to point out this guy, Russell Kirk, was a supporter of the white South African government, but oh. happens to be a little bad fact in there for him. Yeah. So we get to... Uh, well, I, I also like that he just claims without any evidence that the that there is a direct through line from the French Revolution to the what to World War II. Yes. And it's like, yeah, in the same way that there is a direct through line through all of history. Like, <laughs> it's another one of those things where you're like, well, yeah, but if Germany hadn't unified, that's a whole problem. And, and with it's that, not like it? the Nazis were singing the praises of Rousseau and Voltaire. Right? Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> those weren't exactly their wasn't favorite Liberté, fraternité. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. That wasn't exactly what they were going on about there. Yeah, but, we get- but then it, yeah, it just again it ignores the factors that led to the French Revolution in the first place and marks it as a weird like beginning point of modern history, yeah. which is just you can't do that. You can't be like this is where the bad things started. And I was a because little- every 
sorry every historical story is built on what came before it like yeah. there, it's a palimpsest history is literally a palimpsest you can never erase what came before and i was a little disappointed in this chapter that he didn't get to like the the vendee the revolution of the vendee uh or anything yeah. like that which like the counter revolution is super interesting he, yeah and he could make some great arguments off that because those were largely catholics living in the rural parts who were then brutally put down by yeah. the new french state like farmers fighting with pitchforks against trained soldiers who were just massacred like you could make a and you could make a great fucking argument about that but he just yeah and also it. the like again like the rural rural france against cosmopolitan elites like there's oh, a huge there's that so many right good metaphors for him there we could write this book so much better than Ben could. Yeah, <laughs> but we get to the subsection, the Utopia, and I don't know if this is our first subsection or not. I haven't been uh, haven't been paying attention like I of usually do. Of the chapter? Do. No, yeah. I think. I don't know if I just uh, yeah, missed no, I one. Yeah, I think it is. But no, it is called it is. The Utopia of Nationalism. Uh, and this is where he's going to get into later period revolutionary France leading into Napoleon. Uh, and talking about how they put in place forcible conscription in France, uh, turning into the first modern militarized state. And of course, this is where we get things like total war and uh, mm. what ravaged the European continent for decades upon decades. All of which, again, existed in Europe long before the French Revolution. Well, I would say that the, obviously the, the wars were going on. There was a big difference that came about when France and under Napoleon uh, instituted, you know, what we now call total war, where the entire state was mobilized towards war. There were conscriptions. Uh, people were building arms and armaments for the war. Um, and it was just the entire apparatus of the state was put towards war. And the way that they waged war, and you get into things like the fact that they were now fighting rather than in earlier periods, you know, with people on horseback and all that, but now fighting with muskets with bayonets uh, that make yeah. the war all more horrifying. No, I, I get that. But I would also argue that total war started with the Thirty Years War in Europe, which was more than 100 years earlier. And I mean, you look at like the total military dead in the Thirty Years War was over a million. Mm. And the total civilian dead was like four to seven million. So you can't tell me that that's not total war. I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to disagree with you entirely, but I, I will say that things obviously ramped up when, uh, when Napoleon got around to doing his thang. Yeah, no, that, I mean, you know, technology made levee en masse, which is what he talks about, mm -hmm. easier. And, you know, you didn't, have, you, it, as long as you could point and shoot and reload a gun, you could be a soldier, yep. right? You didn't have to, and mass production also made things easier as well. So as, as you get into, you know, early modern societies and move away from muskets and, um, and stuff like that and towards rifles, makes things easier and makes having big sustainable armies in the field and also you know modern farming methods and supply chains and stuff makes all that easier and easier to sustain massive armies but i think the the style of warfare definitely had begun that didn't come with the french revolution like the 30 years war is the first european total war i would say and this has been uh this uh not your grandmother's uh early modern warfare in europe <laughs> club uh we thank you for listening and uh we hope you'll support your local npr station uh yeah it's a yeah NPR voice we're <laughs> we're getting off track of what we're doing but here. Fran france did revolutionize war making i would just argue that it was before the french revolution absolutely anyway. just can't handle the fucking snow 
Uh, so, right, he talks a little bit here about how, and this is just basic, you know, he's generally correct about a lot of this, how the apparatus that they put together that Napoleon later used uh, to, to maintain his armies and institute war, this was a major shift in the way things were done, the levee en masse, as you talked about. Um, and he goes through a p- couple of people who have talked about it, right, Karl von Clausewitz, uh, famous military historian, various people who have talked about all, it. It's just nothing worth talking about because it's one of those times where like, okay, this is like generally correct. I have nothing worth talking about. Yeah, in this and it's also it's also one of those things where I would love to read his thoughts on, which again I don't get the chance to because he doesn't go into it. The American draft, mm-hmm. which was much later in the day than the French draft, yeah. like go sending conscripted people overseas to go and fight the vietnamese for a war that we should never have been a part of i think ben that seems would, much worse to me i think because ben does in some respects get carried by the winds of his party he would be generally anti korea vietnam those sorts of things having the hindsight of knowing how they all turned out i think if we were able to go back in time and put him in place then he'd be screaming to go get those those Viet Cong. i think he'd absolutely be 100 percent there with the yeah, draft and those dirty would. hippies burning their draft cards all that oh yeah come on of course he would can you imagine if people were burning their draft cards it would be like they don't love america blah 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 blah. and i wish i had a draft card to burn they don't send you one anymore what bullshit is this (laughs) they Uh, sent me a you might be selected for selective (laughs) service by the way you can't work yet but we might sign you up for the draft uh, if we need you you can't can't uh can't get a job but hey you might go out to die in a war. How fun does that sound? So what he gets into, though, here that is interesting, rather than all this basic military history stuff, is he claims that the French Revolution led to not only the rise of nationalism, uh, a na- the nation-state, and nationalism more broad. He's wrong about the nation-state there. It wasn't the French Revolution that led to that. Uh, but in nationalism more broadly, he says, it also opened the door for total war. And now he's going to continue on for a page or two talking about nationalism. And this is where I get interested. Because, mm. of course, we know nationalism is a bit of a buzzword these days. And it has been for the last several years under Herr Trump uh, and the, the fascist dictatorship we've been living under. And thankfully, we'll shortly be out from under. Uh, but Ben says in here, now nationalism on its own can be a powerful force for good. And he goes into an Israeli philosopher uh, who makes some points about different nation-state principles and general stuff. I looked into the philosopher. He's a boring guy that a lot of people have criticized pretty widely um, as just being like, you know, justifying Israel. We don't need to go talk about Israel. I would have no problems with Israel if it wasn't an apartheid state. You know, there's stuff there. But this guy's boring. I have no reason to talk about this guy. Uh, Yoram, Yoram Hazoni, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing, I'm probably massacring that, I know. Um, but then he says, after talking about these two principles, which are, I'll, I'll say them, just so you know. First, what he terms the moral minimum required for a legitimate government, which would include minimum requirements for a life of personal freedom and dignity for all. Ironic that an Israeli philosopher is putting that out. Second, the right of national self-determination. Rights accruing to nations cohesive and strong enough to secure their political independence. Again, ironic for an Israeli philosopher to be putting out. Uh, But what he says next about that is, quote, American exceptionalism fulfills Hazoni's criteria. The Declaration of Independence and Constitution operate as creedal unifiers, and a shared history and culture operate as the glue holding together the nation. 
That is a bunch of white supremacist buzzwords in there, for one thing. That got me. <laughs> and for another thing, all that's total horseshit. But he does admit that nationalism can be a force for evil. And when he says that happens, when nationalism turns poisonous, in his words, quote, is when it becomes imperialism, when it suggests that it represents a universalism that can override the legitimate rights of other states, or when it uses national interest as an excuse for conquest on behalf of a Volk. And he does use the German word there. Yeah. I mean, largely, that is most nationalism. Like, it's very rare that nationalism happens and then people are like, we're satisfied with the amount of nationalism we have now. <laughs> I mean, especially, on, you know, on islands, I guess you kind of get that to an extent, even though like, the UK eventually was like, hey, we think Ireland is part of our folk. Um, it was not. But anyway. <laughs> um, Ask Edmund Burke about it. He was yeah, Irish. Well, uh, he was Irish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's the whole thing of like the German folk was they were like oh germany and also austria is germany and also that bit of croatia is germany and also that bit of czechoslovakia everything is we germany. want is germany now <laughs> everything we decide is ger all your germans are belong to us essentially was the the nazi position but again um, i would say if you extrapolate out a little further not again but i would say if you extrapolate out a little further right take what he's talking about this sort of the sense of universalism in nationalism I would say that does apply to the United States because the people who represent themselves as nationalists or think they are nationalists in the United States certainly think that the system they are putting forward can be universalized and is yeah. the most legitimate system, is the one that should control everything else yeah. and don't like any other form of government regardless also, of how it, it may be set up. Was part of the founding myth of America, of the manifest destiny of sea to shining sea, like... That is nationalism beyond the state's borders, right? Like, and expanding into Native American borders. Right. That's and, a whole part of the American founding story. And it is weird that he mentions specifically American exceptionalism as the thing that fulfills those criteria, right? American exceptionalism, which is, it ties into that manifest destiny. There's definitely a tie-in between those two. But... Again, we got on from that portion into just some more boring history and nonsense. He talks a little bit about Hegel, um, which doesn't really have anything to do with anything here. It's just a sort of tossing it in out of nowhere. Um, and he's going to move on in this chapter to the next subsection. We're just going to skip over about a page and a half because it's boring. To a subsection entitled The Utopia of Leveling, which is the most... I mean, just knowing how much I know Ben probably loves Harrison Bergeron, like, I imagine how he came up with that fucking title there. Yeah. But he starts off this subsection shitting on Thomas Paine. You may know the guy who wrote Common Sense, a.k.a. One of the US founding, founding tracks founding of America. Father, yeah, yeah, exactly. Thomas Paine. He's calling anyway. Payne a socialist here and spends a good page and a half shitting on him before comparing him to Karl Marx. Sure. It's insane oh, to me. By right? all means, please compare Thomas Paine to Karl Marx. I love that shit. Inject that. Well, and what he's getting at, and, and the thing is, this is another thing, like when I talked earlier about how they ignore the bad things about people they like and like the good things and, you know, bad things about people we like is enough to discard them. This is a, a thing similar to that that I've noticed um, in this sort of writing and in this book, which is where uh, when you get uh, time periods or events that happened in history, um, 
he likes to compare the ones that he dislikes, say the French Revolution or Karl Marx. He likes to compare the moral systems of those and the events that happened there to contemporary modern standards of morality. He yeah. does not do the same with the things he likes, i.e. the American Revolution, where obviously you know, he never wants to talk about that slave issue. But if he was to give equal treatment to the French Revolution, the U.S. Revolution, uh, Karl Marx and the Soviet Revolution, he would have to acknowledge that if you compare all these things together, that slavery issue is enough to put them on the same level of evil, even with his own mind, of the French Revolution or the Soviet Revolution. Oh, more so, yeah. More so. But, uh, yeah, uh, and just my only note on this bit is the the fabulousness of the name of the guy that allegedly influenced Tom Paine. <laughs> Did you catch that? Baboof. Gracchus Baboof. <laughs> just a phenomenal... And it, uh, apparently he picked the Gracchus, which it, obviously the, the Gracchi brothers were famous, like, um, populists, basically, in, in the late Roman Republic. Mm. But Gracchus Baboof is just... That is a phenomenal name. <laughs> it's a magnificent name. He's so, a proto proto socialist. Again, what they what he's trying to do is connect the French Revolution to Marx, which Marx kind of does himself. To be fair, mm-hmm. by being like, "Hey, this is done, made conditions ripe for a full proletariat revolution." After you know, first has to come the bourgeoisie revolution, and then comes the proletariat revolution. Right? That's that's yeah. the path line that's the through line for for revolutions you have to have a, a bourgeoisie revolution or a petty bourgeoisie revolution to prepare for the coming proletariat revolution so it's maybe not unfair to do that but then his categorization of marx and the 18th 18th brumaire of louis napoleon in particular is just really funny but it's again ignoring that there were like we talked about with greece and all those other time periods ignoring that there were many strains of thought involved in any one of those time periods in any place right yeah it wasn't just well, so- aristotle and plato who were doing heavy thinking back in ancient Greece. Yeah. And the only strain of thought to come out of the French Revolution wasn't just whatever led to Marx. Yeah, and also Marxism wasn't the only... For- you know, he didn't come up with it in a vacuum. Like, Marx was part of various groups and societies that advocated for similar positions. Also, it wasn't- how bad is it that Engels gets so overlooked? I feel like nobody gives Engels the respect Well, Kevin, Engels was a factory owner, so... <laughs> He was a good capitalist. He just funded Marx. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, but you're right. He does go directly from Paine to Karl Marx, saying, Bizarre. quote, The French Revolution didn't end in a communist utopia, but according to Karl Marx, as you mentioned, it was the first step in the gradual evolution of markets towards capitalism. And that's where the dun-dun-dun comes in in this book, I'm sure. Toward communism, not capitalism. Sorry, sorry, communism. Did I get that wrong? Whatever. Yeah. Um, And the the most I can say is the next couple pages are pretty boring. He just talks about basically what Marx thought and he gets it mostly correct he throws in the usual demonizing and uh the usual slanted bullshit you would expect but he's just basically talking about yeah marx thought that the system as existed demeaned human beings uh took the the uh 
uh, capital away from the actual the people who are actually performing yeah. the labor and gave it to the capitalists. Blah blah blah. It's all just the capitalists basic. can only become rich by exploiting workers. Yes, that is correct. Yes, that is actually how the system works. I don't know. If you're <laughs> yeah, aware. that is how the system is designed to work. Uh, but this is all just basic, and he ends it basically with saying that in order to achieve this, Marx's end. The Judeo-Christian God would have to be buried, just as it was in the French Revolution, of course, as we all know. Uh, and we get here to the end of the section we are going to be doing for today's show. And like I mentioned, we'll be doing the rest over on the patron-only bonus episode, which will come out later this week. But I will, as I always do, read the final paragraph of this subsection. I uh, laughed at how bad this final sentence of this subsection it's was. It's pretty bad. And it is, quote, Marx offered a transformative vision of humanity, a system of meaning and purpose. He acknowledged that suffering would follow from his recommended policies, but suggested that such suffering would end in the result in a mess, in a messy end. He, that was his fuck up there. Would end in the result in a no, messy end. Would in the end. Would, would uh, in the end I fucked up. You're right. Yeah. Would in the end result in a messianic age of man in which collective reason would unify with individual meaning. Marx's specter would indeed come to dominate the world, looming astride civilization like a vengeful anti-deity. His philosophy would damn millions to slavery and haunt the openness and freedom of the post-enlightenment world with the specter of glorious utopianism. End of the first half of chapter seven of The Right Side of History. Benedict, how you feeling, buddy? I hate it. I hate no, it. No, don't lie. You loved this chapter. No, that was my favorite chapter. You <laughs> love this fucking chapter. The only parts yeah. you like better are when he talks about fucking Spain. Don't you lie to me. <laughs> That's true. Spain or, or revolutionary France are very much my jab. I know. I know. And I'm excited to get to the next half. In the next half, he's going to get into the USSR, World War II. It's going to be... A hell of a ride and a lot of fun. I hope you. My will come my favorite us. bit, just as a preview, is when he keeps being like, "All these people said they liked the USSR. That's weird, huh?" <laughs> yeah. All these really like smart thinkers think that the USSR had something good going for it. So that's weird. I don't get that. Baby meat bathwater. Uh, so Benedict, that's it. That's it for this week's uh, episode of the Not Grandma's Book Club. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you just can't get enough of us, remember you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode. That's $4 a month for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, drawings to win our copies of the books we read, and more. As always, I have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Savia Kino, Glaurung the Deceiver, Danielle, Terrified Will Be Pecked to Death by Lame Ducks, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, AJ Brantley, Taro Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Andrew Jenko. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, G.I. Joe! Goodbye. Goodbye. Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.